0: On to the uh, meditation of the word. Uh, Ben, thank you for reading that portion very nicely. Uh, From the reading you might have picked up the theme of the message today. Come, let us go over to the other side. Come, let us go over to the other side. Ben read chapter 13, it provides a background to our uh, real passage today, which is First Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. So what we have now is actually the background. As um, I was debating what exactly could be read and done because a uh, large story and wanted to focus on the little bit of it. So, since we've been through the overview of um, uh, a major portion of the Old Testament, most of us know where we are in this chapter. So, the last judge, Samuel, has just appointed Saul as king over Israel, and uh, the period of judges has come to an end. Saul... Comes onto the scene like a tempest. There is Naxion the Ammonite on the east trying to press upon the people of Jabesh Gilead. And he's filled with the Spirit of God and he uh, rallies the people of uh, Israel around him gathers an army of 330,000 men and defeats uh, Nehesh the Ammonite. Following this, the kingdom is renewed at Gilgal by Saul, uh, by Samuel under Saul. And Saul is firmly in position as the king of Israel. So after this happens, he has, Organized a standing army. It's not you call and everyone gathers together, but he also had a standing army of 3,000 people. The 2,000 people who are with him in Mi'kmaq. Okay. Okay. So we have Mi'kmaq here. So 3,000 people were with him in Mi'kmaq and uh, 2,000 people are with him in Mi'kma'k and 2,000 uh, in Mi'kma'k and 1,000 in Giba, or Gi'biyah, not Giba, okay. And we see Gilgal also there where uh, the kingdom was renewed and Saul goes again there for the sacrifice which we read about. And this is beth Aven. Uh, about which we read uh, in the course of uh, the story. So these are the places that are mentioned in the book of First Samuel. Uh, to get a better look at the uh, places that we uh, we are dealing with, this is Mikmash and this is Giba, and it's a big, Valley, a big ravine here, which is usually called Valley Sunvinit. There is Moses, a cliff that faces Giba, and Sene that faces Because Between these two cities is around a mile. Between Gibeah and Giba, it is around five miles, four miles. So you can see uh, the whole layout of the land, and with that, I would um, like to close this one here. Okay. So now we see Saul attacking. Um, in in not not Saul, when we come to chapter thirty, we see that uh, Jonathan has attacked the garrison of Philistine in Geba, which is around four miles from Gibeah where he was stationed. So he attacks the Philistines in Giba. and he's doing the right things, chasing the army out. And how does, Paul, um, how does Saul react to that? Saul celebrated the victory and he probably took credit for it as well. You know, it says, Saul blew the trumpet, and all the Israelites heard it said that Saul had defeated. Of course, it is under his leadership, but I wonder whether he acknowledged his son in that. Um, What would be the case, he blew the trumpet. On the other side, the Philistines heard of it, and they were really mad. They wanted to give a fitting reply to the Hebrews, and they mustered their army. Um, the figures in this uh, chapter may not be accurate because the uh, the original figure in the original text is not very clear. So where they mentioned 30,000 chariots, in some translations, you will find 3,000 chariots. So we'll go with the um, um, pessimistic figure of 3,000 chariots. Okay, so the Philistines have an army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You remember uh, the Lord speaking to Abraham and telling him that he would have children, as many as the sand on the seashore. It's an uncountable number. It's an enormous army that's there. And um, seeing the army, what do the Israelites do? They are scared. They fled and they hid themselves. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the force of Jordan, that's on the east, to the land of Gad and Gilead. So Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. At the end, just 600 men are left. Imagine ourselves in that situation. For 600 men, there is 6,000 horsemen. There is 3,000 chariots. And there is an uncountable number of troops. So for each person, you have Five chariots, 10 horsemen, and a troop of men. What would you and I do? As society, exactly what the people did. They went and hit themselves. What would Saul, the leader, do? Saul had seen Samuel having great victories. Now, Saul was a very religious man. Uh, we would uh, think of him otherwise, but he was a very religious man. He knew that he had to offer sacrifices. So he leaves that place and goes far to Gilgal. If you see that map, he goes far to the east to Gilgal to offer sacrifices. And, you know, he really does not want to tread into the uh, office of uh, Samuel. So he waits for Samuel for seven days. Samuel said he would come in seven days. So on the seventh day, all the men are scattering from him. Now he gets scared in his mind and his heart. So he has no intention of intruding into the office of Samuel. But when Samuel doesn't seem to make it, he decides that the religious right is more important than obeying the Lord in every detail, that the religious right is more important. And he had his trust in those religious rights. So he goes ahead and offers a sacrifice. And we know immediately, as soon as the sacrifice was over, which should take very little time. We have Samuel coming and, the Lord rebukes Saul through Samuel. Why did this religious person Mr. mark? He looked at the surroundings. He looked at the situations, at the dwindling crowd on his side and at the massive military buildup of the Philistines. He had a fickle heart. His heart looked to religious symbols, or maybe let's say even to God, but his heart was fickle, it wouldn't stay there. It would wander away. Shall we say he fits the description of those who hold hold a form of godliness, but denying its power. Holding a form of godliness, but denying its power. As someone said, Saul seems to pray when he should act and act when he should pray. We will see the second aspect of that in uh, 1 Samuel 14. We don't have much time to dwell on that, but if you read that, you will get it. See? There That he's about to pray and there is a lot of action and he gets excited and then he tells the priest, stop, stop, withdraw your hand. He should have prayed and got a counsel from the Lord. He does not do that. Here, he should have actually gone ahead and fought the war, even as he did with perhaps the Ammonite. And the Lord would have been with him. And he should have waited if he was praying, uh, if he wanted to offer the sacrifice for uh, uh, Samuel to come, which he did not. Now we'll try to contrast Jonathan with Saul. So Saul, we have a... Fickle hearted man who's religious on the outside, holding on to the form of godliness and denying its power. Jonathan seems to look at things very differently. The verse that um, he read out uh, said, It may be that the Lord will work for us, verse 6 in chapter 14. We'll read it a bit later. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if We are only 600. The Lord can save us. Now, Saul looked at his 600 men and was probably reminded of the 330,000 men with him that went out to war against Nahesh, the Ammonite. But Jonathan probably looked at the 600 men and was reminded of, it's my imagination, but I'm sure he would have thought some of that aspect. Uh, He would have been probably reminded of Gideon who fought with 300 men. Come on, he had doubled the number, 600 here. Gideon, trusting in the Lord, had won a great victory with an army of just 300. Now a question to each of us. Do we know the power of godliness? Do we know the power of godliness? Or do we hold on to a form of godliness without really trusting the Lord? Of course, we want to seek the Lord's blessings, but somehow deep down in our hearts, are we agnostic? Are we agnostic in our approach to life, even while we intellectually and to a certain extent in our hearts acknowledge the Lord? Are we holding on to the form without getting into the core? Or do we really trust God? Do we pray? with no trust in the efficacy of prayer? Are those just words and some intellectual exercises? Are we really godly in our prayer life, in the way we function in times of crisis, in difficult times? Now we come to the story of the day. How would Jonathan act? Uh, we saw him drive out the enemy from Geba when he was based in Gibeah. So he made that uh, four mile trek with this army of thousand men. Okay? So he was a man of initiatives. In chapter 14, we see him in a completely different setting. Now the Philistines are looting the whole land, and there is nobody to restrain them. And as we read in the in chapter thirteen, there are just two spears with um, Jonathan and Saul. The Israelites don't have any other weapon, and they are fighting against. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and an army that cannot be numbered. Then you have Saul, his father, his father and king. He has beaten the retreat after Gilgal, and he has come back to Gibeah, where he had appointed uh, Jonathan. So he's come back to Gibeah, and with the 600 men. And now Jonathan is just one of the soldiers there. Of course, he has his armor bearer. And that is basically what it is. His father is inactive. He is in his hometown under a pomegranate tree. We are used to pomegranate shrubs, but pomegranate trees can be really tall trees, uh, like uh, two story high and spread as much. So that is his headquarters there now. And he's scared, so he has the Ark of the Covenant with him and a priest carrying it to protect him from the wicked Philistines because the Philistines had captured the ark before. And if they touched the ark, they knew it was trouble. And that's the ark to protect. him. And chapter 13, verse 15, we also read that then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to the Benjamin. So Samuel is also on the spot, probably interceding for the nation that he had led earlier when there is this such crisis in Leadership, we can safely assume that Jonathan has no men under his control other than the armor bearer. Now, what would Jonathan do? Let us now read 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses one through 15. 1 Samuel 14, one through 15. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, Said so to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah and repumped in a Pongrenet tree which is in Maghrib. The people who were with him were about 600 men Ahida, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli the lost priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine's garrison, there is a sharp rock on the side, on one side, and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Boses, and the name of the other, Sina. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say this to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus," Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. So that it was a very great trembling. First of all, here we see Jonathan's trust. We see a courageous guy whose courage flows not from himself, but his trust is in the Lord. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving. By many or by few he will save. Nothing restrains the Lord. Numbers are not a matter. Many of us are familiar with 2 Chronicles 16, 9, second portion. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is loyal to Him. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is loyal to him. The story of 2nd Chronicles 16.9 comes uh, more than hundred years later, but we see the same principle at work here. The Lord is just scanning the face of the whole earth, just like a radar scans the skies to see Airplanes that come into its view to support. The ATC comes and supports the airplane that comes into its view. Even so, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, seeking for a man whose heart is loyal to the Lord. Once he finds that person, the Lord comes on board. He supports him strongly. Nothing restrains the Lord. Nothing ever restrains the Lord. Let these words be in in every fiber of our hearts. Nothing restrains the Lord. In an extremely difficult situation, Jonathan must have thought of the Lord who saved the people from Egypt from under slavery to Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptians, who split the Red Sea, who brought his people safely through the wilderness, who fed them, who clothed them, who protected them. He would have thought of the Lord, who led, who dried up the flooded Jordan so that his army would cross over. He would have thought of the Lord who settled them in the land of Canaan and had been their protection all through the ages, through the time of the judges, even though they sinned. He would have thought of the victory that the Lord gave Samuel without a weapon. He would have thought of his own victory at Gebah. The same Lord was with his people now. What restrains the Lord? The same Lord is with us now. What restrains the Lord? Nothing except lack of hearts that are loyal to him. If there are hearts that are loyal to him, he is there to show himself strong on our behalf. If that Heart of trust is not there. If we have fickle hearts, if we we are practically agnostics, the Lord cannot show himself strong on our behalf. Jonathan was assured, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you. The scripture is full of injunctions to trust the Lord. Look at these few verses from Psalms 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high power. 1830, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pride. He's a buckler to all those that trust him. And that is true even today. He's a buckler to all the, those that trust in him. Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. What if there are five chariots against me, 10 horsemen against me? What if there are garrisons of people, uh, of troops aligned against me? I will remember the name of the Lord our God. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. 37.5 37.40 And the Lord shall help him and deliver him. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Why? Because they trust in him. So the first thing we note in this chapter is Jonathan's complete trust in the Lord. Second, we look at the unity among brethren. Jonathan talks to his armor bearer. And their hearts are one in purpose. Look at verse 7. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Brothers dwelling together in unity, trusting the Lord together, when we stand in the Lord's name, what force can stand against us? When we stand in the name of Jesus, tell me who can stand before us? In the mighty name of Jesus, we have the victory. When we stand together as one man, let me bring it out from Philippians again. When we stand fast in one spirit, striving together for the gospel, not in any way terrified by our adversaries. It is to them a proof of their perdition and to us that of salvation that comes from God. When we stand together in one spirit, we are encouraged and we know that it is salvation for us. Salvation has another meaning here as well. On uh, uh, protection from all our circumstances, salvation that comes from God. while Our enemies are terrified. Why did the Philistines get terrified? It was just because of the unity of these two men and who dared to trust the mighty God who made the heavens and the earth and holds the whole earth in the palm of his hand. Now, these guys, in their heart, Trusting the Lord with all their heart, united in their heart. They also plan with that trust in their, their, uh, they devise plans with that trust. They do not move ahead without a plan. They anticipate possibilities. Either they will come or we have to go. How How do we have an understanding with each other? They settle on how to proceed. Should they stand the ground and allow the enemy to approach, or should they advance to an enemy at standstill? They trust the Lord to lead them through that step as well, but they make their plans. They use their heart as well as their head. And remember the injunction, love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, and All your strength. So the third thing is, heart, mind, heart, one in heart and then one in mind and then one in action. Trust, plan and act. Now with all their strength, they descend Boses and goes up Sene. They descend to the ravine and crawl up on the other side and ascend into the enemy territory. And there they stood strong in heart, strong in their mind, and strong in their strength that came from the Lord. And in that impossible situation, victory from the Lord, The Lord comes through, the Lord comes through. He shows himself strong on on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. He makes the enemies fall one by one in front of Jonathan and gives the strength to his armor bearer to kill 20 of them at once. And that unity, you know, it is to them a sign of their perdition. To the enemy it is a sign of their perdition. The Philistines are confused. There was trembling in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. It is a sign when we stand together as one man for the gospel, the enemy cannot stand. The enemy cannot stand. The enemy is confused. It's a sign to them of their perdition. And look at what the Lord does. He causes an earthquake and the earthquake. The Lord sent an earthquake for the already confused and fearful Philistines. The Lord showed himself strong on their behalf. The oneness of the duo is proof to their adversaries of their perdition. Why? Because the Lord has commanded his blessings where brothers dwell together in unity. To Jonathan and the armor-bearer, it is a sign of their salvation, and that from God, not from themselves. Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And let us go on to the next section of the story. First Samuel chapter 14 verses 16 through 23. Now the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahida, Bring the Ark of God here. For at that time, the Ark of God was for the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was a very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth-haven. You remember Beth-haven, to the Philistine territory to the west. So that battle shifted to Beth-haven. What an incredible story. But we see in this section, Saul, an ineffective, fickle-hearted leader. He again goes through the religious ceremony. The presence of the Lord of hosts is supposed to bear the Ark of the Covenant. But his heart was overcome with excitement of what is happening around rather than waiting on the Lord. He sought to do that. He started praying. Oh, oh, we have to go and act. Let's stop praying and let's go now he chooses midway to act in his flesh without dependence on the Lord. If you read the following sections, that is from verse 24 onwards, we also see that his heart is led astray, but also that he acts very foolishly. He does not even apply his mind. He puts them under a very rash oath. A man whose heart is not stayed on the Lord cannot apply a mind um, uh, uh, and, and be wise in his mind. Now, see the contrast here. A heart that is loyal to the Lord versus a fickle heart. A mind that is used but in complete submission to the Lord versus a mind that does not even apply itself that does not serve the Lord, but in the heat of the moment, move, makes a rash decision. In terms of our camp theme, Romans twelve two. a renewed mind, which illustrates what is good and acceptable and perfect versus a mind that is conformed to the world. We have the contrast between Jonathan and, uh, It's all here. And let us look at what is happening further. The Philistines got confused and fought one another. And the turncoats of Israel, those who had joined the Philistines when they were in control, the turncoats of Israel now join forces with the the Israelites. They desert the Philistines. Just even as we see uh, in the state of Bengal, what's happening, turn courts go from here to there and from there to here. But the Lord goes through that as well. And then there were the fearful, those who fled, those who are not strong of heart, they take courage, they, 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 they take strength. The enemy's scared. The wavered tried to make a comeback. Some of them would make a real commitment and some of them would not. And those of faint heart are strengthened. The section of the story is summed up well. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to beth Aven. Do we trust the Lord when faced with difficult situations? When situations look desperate, do we trust the Lord? Is a heart like a weathercock affected this way and that way by the situation around us? Or do our hearts remain loyal, loyal to the one who Is longing to show himself strong on our behalf. And he's not the mightiest man on earth. He's beyond the earth. He's the one who created the earth and heaven. He wants to show himself strong on our behalf. Do we have a fickle heart? Or do we have a heart that is loyal to him? The Lord is eagerly waiting to strongly support those whose hearts are loyal to him. He's scanning the earth and heaven to find such people? Will the Lord's eyes come and rest on each of us? It's a personal question. Will the Lord's eyes come and rest on each of us? We are all familiar with the Great Commission. Now, it calls us not just to evangelize, but to disciple. And not disciple, and disciple not just a section of the children of a certain believers. The Lord calls us to disciple the nations. We are not called to disciple a section of believers of a particular mold but to disciple all nations of course not each of us can go and disciple all nations nor even in has in any local church the ability to do that but each of us and our, each local church has its own part that the lord wants to play in the task of discipling the nations. What is a part as individuals, as cell groups, and as, as families, and as a church in the great task of discipling that the Lord has given us? It is not an option. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all whatsoever I have commanded you. So it's a command to teach them to observe all whatsoever he has commanded by bringing them initially to be baptized, to be identified with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord doesn't ask us to disciple just the people in a city or in a state, or in a country, it is disciple all nations. That is the broad mandate. What is the part that the Lord has given to you and me, to our families, to our cell groups, to other focus groups that we might have, of singles, of married men, married sisters, the social work group, Many other groups that we might have within us and as a church. Will we decide to take that part seriously? Will we decide to seek it out from the, seek it out from the Lord? And will we decide to take that part seriously rather than spend our time in the hometown of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree with the Ark of Covenant nearby as our protection? Scared of the enemy, but saying we trust. The call is to disciple the nations for Christ. Again, a personal question to each of us. Do we hold on to a form of godliness and at the same time deny its power? Are we practical agnostics in the garb of dedicated saints? I want to ask that question again. Are we practical agnostics in the garb of dedicated saints? Or are we stayed on the Lord? Do we see the Lord Jesus Christ as one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth and under the earth? And who has promised to be with us? till the end of the ages, who has given us that commission. Do we see him or do we look around and see the enemy and our lack of resources and our weaknesses and our lack of this gifting and that gifting? Do we think that our life is being run by the socio-political educational systems? And the economical systems that the world has built up, do we think that is running our life? Or do we see the King of Heaven is running our lives? I would like to read Psalm 115 without any comments as we stop this. But I would like to do it just as uh, Jerry did last time. Let's unmute ourselves, read this psalm and read it responsibly. So, congregation, please unmute yourself and turn to Psalm 115 and get ready to read it with me. Psalm 115, okay. Please unmute yourself and you can read with me. Come, let us go over to the garrison of the Philistines, that is to the enemy territory, to the other side. Come, let us go over to the other side. Let's bow down our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for all your great love. Thank you for all your great mercy. We make so many mistakes, you still forgive us and you still restore us and you want to use us. You are looking for the time, for the day when our hearts will be loyal to you, when we will not trust the systems of the world, nor be, nor be intimidated by them when our eyes will see clearly to see the call that you have given us, not to go back to our home town of Gibeah, not to rest under the pomegranate tree, not to have the safety of a priest around us, but to launch out against 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore, just what, me and my body, or me and my bodies. Why we are strong. When we are weak, we are strong. Let the weak say they are strong. Let the poor say they are rich. Because of what the Lord has done. The Lord our God is our strength. He's our buckler. He's our shield. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. He's our strong and mighty tower. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you want to support. All those who. Seek to stick to be stayed on you. Those whose hearts are loyal to you. Thank you that your eyes are scanning the whole face of the earth. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart are loyal to you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the example of Jonathan. Lord, help us not to be like Saul with an... With a heart that is never stayed on, that runs away. Thank you, Father. Help CBF. Help CBF. Help each of us. Help each of our families. Help our cell groups. Help all our focus groups. Thank you, Father. In Christ's precious name, Amen.